0: a global campaign for the abolition of slavery and serfdom had enormous impact. And here are just some of the important dates when serfdom or slavery were eliminated legally. Uh, In some cases, this preceded its practical elimination. And in some cases, it came effectively after as a ratification of a change. But this happened very rapidly. Institutions and practices that had existed for thousands of years in a rather short period of time, began to disappear from the face of the earth. And it didn't happen just automatically. There were people who dedicated their lives to this cause, the World Anti-Slavery Congress and others. I put up there a famous painting of um, Alexander II proclaiming the uh, elimination of serfdom in Russia. And I did that for a reason. It's not only a great moment. He was known as Alexander the Liberator, not a complete libertarian or anything, but, but that's a pretty good thing to have on your resume. Uh, you eliminated serfdom uh, in a giant empire. But the sad part is, of course, what happened to him. He was on his way to sign a new constitution for Russia to give it a constitutional monarchy, and he was assassinated uh, before he got there. His uh, coach was attacked. Uh, They killed his coachman and so on and he went out to help people from his armored coach and one of the crazy people, the nihilists, uh, blew him up as well and the consequence was uh, a catastrophe for Russia because his successor said enough of this liberalism, enough of this openness, enough of this constitutionalism and returned Russia to the path of autocracy and absolute government and how different it would have been. If you want to visit one of the saddest places in the world, go to St. Petersburg to the Church of the Spilled Blood, uh, which is where he was assassinated. So the world would have been a very different place had that one event not taken place. But the abolitionist movement also led into the movement for equal rights for women, and this was very important. And another cause in which libertarians played an absolutely central role People such as Angelina Grimke, the two Grimke sisters who had been very active uh, advocates for liberty and uh, against slavery, dedicated their lives to it, and also turned this to the cause of equal rights for women. And indeed, the American abolitionist uh, movement was very strong on this when William Lloyd Garrison and others went to London with a group of abolitionists, which were men and women. Uh, The famous scene when they were told, oh, ladies. Well, of course, you may observe from the ladies' gallery. The gentlemen will be discussing the business. And the American abolitionists discussed this, and the men all went and sat in the ladies' gallery with the ladies because they said our cause is for equal human rights. Uh, It is not uh, uh, satisfied by having the ladies up in the ladies' gallery. Now the liberal campaigners supported freedom for everyone, and there's a very important Brazilian classical liberal whom I admire tremendously, Joaquim Nabuco, And he dedicated his life to the elimination of slavery. <clears throat> this was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to officially eliminate that odious practice. And I was struck on a trip to Brazil, I saw a statue of him and uh, uh, was uh, learned about him And this famous statement from his book on abolitionism and what it was that moved them. And this, I thought, captured the libertarian mentality better than anything I had ever read. Educate your children, educate yourselves in the love for the freedom of others. For owning this way will your own freedom not be a gratuitous gift from fate. You'll be aware of its worth and you will have the courage to defend it. What it means to be a libertarian isn't what our critics claim. They assert, because we believe in individual rights and the importance of the individual human being, it's the same as saying, all I believe in is me. And the only thing that matters is me. When they hear the word individual, that's what they hear, evidently. It's just about me, 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 me. But to be a libertarian means you believe in the freedom of other people. So... Obvious example, I don't smoke marijuana. I, I don't like the smell of it. I don't like being around it. It's not in my home. If other people want to do it, that's their business, but it's not part of my life. But it makes me really angry and upset when other people are imprisoned and their lives are destroyed because they had a plant in their house or because they engaged in some recreational practice that wasn't harmful to me or other people although that law does not actually impinge on me directly, I'm not going to engage in the practice. Uh, I don't have to be a member of a religious minority. I don't have to be a Yazidi, or a Shia, or a Sunni, or a Christian, a Catholic, or a Protestant, or a Jew, to be angry and upset when those people have their rights violated, when they are murdered for professing their religion peacefully. So to be a libertarian, To be active in promoting liberty means you believe in the freedom of other people. This is a very important element that again, our critics, they can't get it through their minds. They think talking about individual freedom means it's just about me, rather than seeing every individual as having moral value and worth. Liberals also campaigned for peace. The free trade movement that they promoted and campaigned for so vigorously was a peace movement and they understood it as such. They understood the old principle, if goods cannot cross borders, armies will. And they said, if we want to make a more peaceful world, probably the best thing we can do is to promote freedom of trade, freedom of travel, allow people to travel, to trade, and see each other as friends. One of the great German liberals, an enemy of um, Bismarck put it very neatly. He said, if we could only get every German to see all of their neighbors as customers, they wouldn't want to shoot them. <laughs> it's a very simple, basic point. And he said, that's how we should see our neighbors, as potential customers. And this would at least get rid of the desire to shoot them. So some of the great figures that I put up there that deserve to be remember, Jean-Baptiste say, um, John Bright, Frederick Bastiat, Eugen Richter, one of the great uh, German liberals, and it's quite sad, Germany had an extraordinarily robust and intellectually powerful liberal movement, but they were defeated. And this is a reminder to us that it is not inevitable that liberalism uh, will triumph for libertarian values. They worked tirelessly, and unfortunately, they lost, and the consequence was a catastrophe for Uh, Germany and for all of Europe and the world. Richard Cobden and Frédéric Passy. Frédéric Passy was a great French economist and the first winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And he was known as a champion. It was perfect, Nigel. Uh, Every time. In fact, whenever I mention the name Frédéric Passy. Come on, Frédéric Passy. Let's hear it. Ding. Okay. Uh, He's a figure who deserves to be remembered because he was a pioneer of the global Peace Movement, and he saw free trade as the path toward it. Unfortunately, as the 19th century drew to a close, our ideas began to wane. Other ideas came into the ascendancy. Nationalism, socialism, various doctrines of racism and collectivism, imperialism, and so on. And this was noticed by some of the libertarians of the day. E.L. Godkin, who was at the time editor of The Nation, may surprise you, was a very strong classical liberal journal at the time. It certainly is not anymore. Uh, In 1900, wrote a very powerful column, and there is an excerpt from it in the Libertarian Reader, so I encourage you to look at that. I think all of you have copies. This is one of the most chilling things I've ever read. Nationalism, the sense of national greed, has supplanted liberalism. An old foe under a new name. The old fallacy of divine right the absolute power of the state, has once more asserted its ruinous power, and before it is again repudiated, there must be international struggles on a terrific scale. He had a pretty good sense of what the 20th century had in store, what was going to happen not very many years after this period. And so the people of that time tended to be very, very depressed, the classical liberals. They saw that the initiative was being taken by people who were leading the world towards war and destruction and tyranny. I remember hearing F.A. Hayek, when he was rather old, uh, give a cheery talk. Uh, Here he was uh, uh, substantially older in his 80s than the audience, most of whom were in their 20s. And he said, when I was a very young man, only old people believed in the free society. And now that I'm very young, it's only, and now that I'm very old, it's only young people. <laughs> and he was happy about that. He said he was so happy that here he was, 60 years older than the rest of the people in the room. And that really, toward the end of his life, uh, brightened him up tremendously. But he had seen this huge change. When he was young, there were almost no young liberals. When he was old, there were not very many ones. Well, the result of that was a horror, and the 20th century saw murder and tyranny on an astonishing scale. Uh, These people who implemented collectivist ideas uh, killed staggering numbers of people. I think everyone recognizes everyone, possibly not one. That's Pol Pot. He's on the list because he managed to kill a higher percentage of the country that he Uh, conquered than any of the others. In terms of numbers, it was smaller than the others, but he wins on percentage points. And I should point out, unsurprisingly, he was a big fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was, I think, (laughs) one of the most loathsome and evil, despicable people and writers who ever lived, a really awful human being. Um, Did I mention I don't like him also? He (laughs) he was terrible a terrible man and his ideas were a catastrophe uh, when they were implemented by those who were moved by them. Now even during those very dark days there were people who stood up and it's worth remembering them. Uh, Under National Socialism there were people who opposed them. Uh, Here, Hans and Sophie Scholl, they were executed for doing so. They were beheaded uh, but they did stand up. They organized a small resistance group called the White Rose. And if you go to the Holocaust Museum, you can see the documents that they circulated. And what was quite interesting, kind of here comes to a question uh, that was posed to me. Uh, I was really startled the first time I read them because I thought that they would have quotations from Immanuel Kant or something, and the quotation that they had was from Lao who motivated them to stand up for justice. Uh, And they asked questions, they said, where did the Jews go? We're told they went away. Do you believe that? What happened to them? And for this, of course, uh, they were murdered. Uh, I apologize. Uh, We think about other people, such uh, brave people as Andrei Sakharov who was an astonishingly brave person, what he did and what he suffered. So many people in the Soviet Union who stood up. Most of them, we will never know their names. They they are dead and buried, executed, machine gunned. Uh, We'll never know their identities, but we know that they were there. And there were people in freer societies who also stood up and revitalized the ideas of liberalism. So starting in the United States and Canada, uh, and then also in Switzerland and elsewhere, some of these great figures. Ludwig von Mises, starting in the 1920s, his criticism of socialism and collectivism. Isabel Patterson, so wonderful, most interesting writer from Canada, uh, wrote for the Saturday Evening Post and articulated the ideas of liberty. I think her essay, The Humanitarian with a Guillotine, is simply brilliant. Uh, Rose Wilder Lane. Rose was an astonishing woman. She was a young communist. She went to the Soviet Union, so excited about this new society, and was horrified and dedicated her life to warning humanity about it. She was a really fascinating person, Uh, the only person I've heard of who was actually proposed to by King Zog of Albania. and uh, for marriage, and uh, she was just a fascinating woman who earned her living as a, as a professional writer. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, who in 1944 uh, almost ruined his academic career by leaving monetary and capital theory and talking about socialism and the road to serfdom, a book that is often cited and rarely read today by its critics, uh, who assert that it's about how big government or affirmative action or something is the road to serfdom, he talked about central planning and he saved us from central planning. It's a very important book that had an enormous success. And of course, Ayn Rand, who came to the United States from the Soviet Union, lied her way into the US. She was an illegal immigrant because she lied to the immigration authorities uh, to get into the country and then helped to galvanize generations on behalf of individualism. Milton Friedman, such a great educator a uh, really remarkable person. And then two probably not so well known to you, Luigi Einaudi, who was the first president of the Italian Republic, a great uh, economic historian, had been an anti-fascist activist, and he and his team gave Italy ten solid years of libertarian economic reform that led to what was called the miracolo economico, the great economic miracle of Italy, which people forget today astonishing economic growth that came about from this as they swept away fascist legislation. And Ludwig Erhard, who was the finance minister associated with the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle in Germany as well, liberated the German economy and led to such astonishing economic growth. All of these figures were motivated by liberalism and changed the world. Now, in those dark days, 1940s, there was a small number of people. I mentioned Isabel Patterson in 1943, her book, The God of the Machine, Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead, that came out, and Rose Wilder Lane, The Discovery of Freedom. So three remarkable women in one year brought out these three books, and they were enormously popular. At this time, primarily in the United States and Canada. This is where they had their biggest audience. Uh, but they have subsequently had an impact uh, globally. and Then 1944 in London, uh, Professor Hayek uh, with The Road to Serfdom. This book had a huge impact, not only in the US but in Britain and across Europe and then subsequently uh, around the world. Uh, Hayek was in some sense got the higher profile because he was a professor of economics at London School of Economics and he wrote in that kind of style uh, that was uh, although the book was pilloried and assaulted and attacked on astonishingly brutal reviews, if you go back and read the reviews at the time, uh, it really changed the minds of huge numbers of people. And it's worth pointing out that the dedication to the book might be surprising to some. It is dedicated to socialists of all parties. And the reason is he believed they had made a mistake. It did not follow they were bad or wicked people. Some of these were his friends, and he tried to convince them they had made an intellectual error. They wanted these things, and the means they had chosen would not deliver them. They would not get freedom, prosperity, progress, and equality. They would get poverty. They would get hierarchy. They would get domination. They would get tyranny, and they would get backwardness as a consequence. And he changed the minds of huge numbers of people. It came out as a comic book, There was a Reader's Digest condensed edition. It was published in many different languages. There were documentaries made about it, uh, these film uh, videos that were shown in movie theaters and so on. And it had a huge impact. It had a big impact on one young Englishman, Anthony Fisher. He was a decorated hero of the Battle of Britain. He had flown against the uh, uh, Luftwaffe bombers. His brother was also a pilot who was shot down and killed. He became a commercial farmer, successful commercial farmer, and he had gone to Hayek and basically said, your book has convinced me, I want to get involved in politics, run for parliament, and carry this to save Britain. And Hayek's advice was roughly, if you really want to have a big impact, influence the climate of ideas within which the politicians act that will have the bigger long-term impact. If you just run for parliament, you'll become another politician. Change the whole climate of ideas within which the politicians cast their votes and make their speeches. And he established the Institute of Economic Affairs. He was a decorated hero, very influential person, and had a big impact on Britain. I'll return to his story in a moment. 1946. Hayek gathered a group for the promotion of liberalism. Thirty-six scholars in on Switzerland. It had been planned initially for 1938, but the war intervened. People couldn't get visas, and then after the war broke out, obviously this was not possible. Uh, he began, before the war ended, to say we need, if we're going to avoid this horror again, to revive the ideas of liberty. And began to reach out to people. <clears throat> they debated what should be the name, and finally said, let's name it after the hotel we're in. It is the Mont Pelerin Society. It included quite a remarkable group. That 36 had, oh my gosh, (laughs) there we go, Uh, uh, eight future Nobel Prize winners in economics, some of the greatest philosophers, Michael Polanyi, Bertrand de Juvenel, Karl Popper, great historians such as Dame Cecily Wedgwood and George Hilton, And this organization was dedicated to reviving the ideas of liberalism as a living intellectual project, not a dogma, not something you memorize and get the right answers, but something you're willing to debate, to advance, to improve, to disagree with each other. And some of the debates were very, very, very robust among the members. Think tanks were established. Many people forget that the first of the classical liberal thinkers, uh, think tanks, was actually in Australia the Institute of Public Affairs, which is still going strong, great uh, uh, libertarian voice in in Australia. Institute of Economic Affairs, Foundation for Economic Education in the US. Some years later, the second wave, if you will, uh, the Cato Institute and others in the US. Journals and magazines were established in Norwegian, Italian, and French, and German. Uh, And these began to revive the ideas of liberty at this level among intellectuals who would find it exciting. And I recommend reading Hayek's little essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism. It lays out what his game plan was, what he had in mind. Just to turn to the IEA, they really helped to change Britain. Mrs. Thatcher uh, put it very neatly on the occasion of their 30th anniversary. She gave a lovely speech speaking about uh, the small number of people who founded the IEA. They were the few, but they were right and they saved Britain. And I should add, being Mrs. Thatcher, she was a really brilliant order, did not agree with her on everything at all, but I admired her tremendously and got to see her in Parliament debating Neil Kinnick. She added, after this, she says, but don't forget, it's the hen that lays the egg. <laughs> Which is a very Thatcherite uh, moment there that she was reminding them she was the one who did it. It was the hen <laughs> who lays the egg. Now much of the modern libertarian movement, the story is told by a very, in a very good book by Brian Doherty with Reason Magazine, Radicals for Capitalism. I like this book, I recommend it. It sometimes has chapters and I reviewed it and I was nicely critical. He sometimes dwells on people who were very odd and extremely obscure. And I explained there's a reason they were extremely obscure. Uh, but he thought they were interesting, so keep that in mind. It's a, he makes it a somewhat zanier story than I think it uh, should, should be understood as. Now, what I do, most of my work is not in the U.S. I travel most of the year abroad, and I get to work with libertarians in uh, Nepal and in Poland. You have a window open obscuring the All right, whatever that is. To view this, you need some Java thing. Okay, Where was I? Okay, uh, come back to here. All right, view. All right, we'll come back to that then. <laughs> Why is this not working? Okay. All right, we'll do that again. Now we go. Okay, those, these, those are libertarians in Nepal. Uh, this is in uh, Warsaw. That's in Wuj, and also in Poland, very active Polish libertarian movement. This is with some of the Afghan libertarians. That's how I dress because I have an aversion to being beheaded in other <laughs> countries. Uh, this is in North Korea. This is interesting, uh, where we do some work. That's Nigeria. It's me in the middle. And uh, <laughs> at the, with uh, the dean of the university, it's a very gracious gentleman, giving him a copy of the book you have, Realizing Freedom, with a colleague, uh, Adedeo Thomas. Uh, This was uh, at the Students for Liberty uh, Conference in uh, Lagos, which is a really great, uh, exciting group. This was meeting with some of the libertarians in Namibia, uh, uh, Nathan Tiramiju, who is doing just great work on uh, freedom education and also property rights reform and helping farmers to develop private property rights. The government explains to them that it's false consciousness to want private property that because they're peasants, they should want communal property. And the farmers keep explaining, nobody improves communal property and everybody overgrazes. So it was really quite remarkable that the farmers there are, are robust property rights advocates who understand it better than just about any college professor you could imagine. In uh, Bhutan, we have a thriving libertarian movement in Bhutan and so on. I've been doing this for uh, quite a few years Uh, That was uh, when I was in uh, Berlin uh, in the early 1980s, and this is me expressing my view of communism (laughs) at the time. And uh, and I worked uh, in Eastern Europe in communist countries uh, with wonderful people. This was Prague during the revolution, and getting a lot of books published, libertarian books in Czech and Russian and Bulgarian, Albanian, Polish, Estonian, and so on. And my old friend Karl Marx at the (laughs) Karl Marx University. Uh, So I still uh, do work in lots of regions around the world with the Atlas Network. If you want to get a directory of libertarian groups around the world, go to atlasnetwork.org, go to directory, and they come up by country and region and so on. And there's wonderful people that you can work with. And we advance the ideas of liberty And also sound public policy. So these are some of the websites that we uh, publish at Atlas in Chinese, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, French for Arabic, uh, French for Africans, so Francophone Africa, English for English, uh, Anglophone Africa in Bahasa spoken in Indonesia, uh, Portuguese, Vietnamese, uh, and uh, Hindi, Urdu, and other languages. And then also working with people in crisis countries. So in Ukraine last year, I worked to organize uh, the uh, emergency economic summit for Ukraine. And we had 650 people there. And we brought reformers, former ministers of finance, uh, former prime ministers from countries that have been through crises, who understood libertarian principles, who said, this is what you have to do. It's not magic. There's no white knight waiting to save you. You have to eliminate these uh, agencies. You have to fire these bureaucrats. You have to free the prices. Ukraine still has state-administered prices and a Ministry of Price Controls. You have to get rid of it. And bendukidze a very good friend, who'd been Minister of Economy in the Republic of Georgia, put it very neatly. He said, if you don't do it, the country will be lost. And- Currently, we have friends who are advising President Poroshenko in such difficult circumstance. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're very active there trying to help them. And then most recently in Greece, uh, with Cato, we organized, and two of our Greek partners, the Emergency Economic Summit for Greece. And this was, again, bringing top reformers, former government ministers who have the moral authority and the experience to say, we did it, you can do it, this is what you've got to do and laying out the whole uh, presentation. Uh, We had a uh, quite packed auditorium It was on the media and laid out the plan. Uh, All kinds of serious experts. And interestingly enough, the finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, uh, came and delivered the final talk. He was supposed to come. He agreed to speak at 11.20, which is fine. The day before, he said, I'm not. I'm going to come at the end and give the last talk and leave." So our Greek partners said, well, what do we do, and I'll translate a little bit into more genteel English, he's done a bad thing to us. And I said, well, there's not much you can do right now, but let's do a bad thing to him. <laughs> and that's not the language I used. And um, <laughs> because he had done this. And so I said, let's do this. I'll talk to Tom Sargent, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. I'll ask him to take very close notes on the finance minister's speech, and then I'll invite him up immediately to give the critique. And so the headline was, Nobel Laureate uh, Humiliates and Spanks Finance Minister. (laughs) Which is not the headline that Varoufakis wanted. Um, and I should mention another group that's very important to me and to the Atlas Network uh, that's growing internationally and that is Students for Liberty. This is a great organization. I love uh, the work that they do all around the planet. This is really the future of liberty. They are on every continent. They have people of uh, every ethnicity, race, language uh, promoting our ideas of liberty And, uh, and actually Ask uh, Stoyan, who's the chairman of the European Students for Liberty from Bulgaria, stand up. And uh, great organization. So Anyone who's interested in the Students for Liberty, if you're potential mentor t- members, there are some members here. Talk to Stoyan. If you're a potential donor, I do give the money every month. Uh, it's fairly painless. There's a little sound out of my bank account. Uh, and I know, because I go to their conferences, they're really cheap. And I like that, because they do not waste my money. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of the organization. So let me conclude by asking, what's driving this contemporary worldwide libertarian movement? Well, there's lower cost of transacting. We think about travel costs have fallen pretty dramatically for much of the planet. Electronic communications cost. Uh, this interweb thing everyone is talking about has made it easier. Uh, but also the libertarian virtues. Uh, We do believe in individuality. Uh, We take that very seriously. We don't believe in collectives and big groups opposed to each other uh, based on some ascriptive uh, features. We believe in responsibility. But also, and this is a very important classical liberal value, we do believe in solidarity. And that's one that is usually not mentioned among the virtues of liberalism because we think of individuality and responsibility as primary virtues. And our opponents, let's call them that, uh, on the left and the right, what's their primary virtue? It's solidarity, us together. And individuality and responsibility don't appear. But it doesn't follow that solidarity is not a liberal virtue. It also is a liberal virtue. It's not the dominant one. It's not the primary one. Individuality, freedom, responsibility are dominant. But standing with our friends when they suffer is important. So when in China we have had good friends like Guo Yushan and others, Wang Kaiping, who have suffered from the authorities, we do not forget them. We do remember them. We help them when we can. When we have friends in Iran and Russia, and elsewhere who have suffered various kinds of persecution, we do not forget them. And they know that. And that's really important to people to know that they are not alone. But also, we respect peaceful diversity. This is another part of the liberal perspective. We have a universal message. It can be expressed in any language or context, culture, and form. There is a universal message of liberty universal aspirations for freedom, independence, prosperity, and dignity. I do not believe people, uh, our collectivist friends, who tell me, oh, they don't understand freedom. So, well, can you explain that about the ones who are trying to escape from that place? The North Koreans don't understand freedom? How come there are people trying to get out of that place? How can that be? I do understand that it is a value that is suppressed in their society, but it cannot be the case that someone born in North Korea is incapable of feeling the desire to be a free person. That's not possible. They have not bred it out of them. Maybe someday the psychopaths will breed a race of human beings that aren't really human beings and have no desire for freedom, but they haven't done it yet. So I do not believe those claims. But very importantly also, I do not promote Western values, and I'll explain why. Sometimes I say this, and conservative audiences in America, or Europe, are angry or shocked at me. Because when they hear Western values, they think justice, freedom, responsibility, and so on. Okay. But then I ask them, I say, is communism a Western value? Our Chinese friends remind us Karl Marx was not from Shanghai. <laughs> Karl Marx was a German. If you want to put a little flag on the idea of communism, it's German, it's not Chinese. And as one explained, he says, we've had a lot of crazy stuff in our history, but never anything that insane (laughs) as communism. That was imported to us by European intellectuals. Fascism, Benito Mussolini, he was not Egyptian. He was Italian. He was a European. These are European ideas. They're Western ideas also. So which Western ideas do we promote? Well, I promote the ones that we share, but those are shared by other people as well. So there's not just one thing called Western values. The West has been the source of a lot of good things and a lot of pretty terrible things also. National socialism, another Western idea, really, really bad thing. So we should understand that these are human values that we're promoting, they're not Western values. And every culture and every society has at least two narratives. There's a narrative of power and domination. You find that in every culture, a story of power and violence. But there's also a story of liberty. And every society, every culture, there is a narrative of freedom. And part of the job is to uncover it. If it's been covered up by tyranny and war and violence, to find those roots of liberty in their own society. They take many, many different forms. I'll give you one simple example, something I learned when I was in Ghana some years ago and with our colleagues, we're organizing a libertarian conference, and one of the radio stations, Joy FM, which is a very big West African radio station, said, oh, we want to have Dr. Palmer on. And I said, okay, to, to talk about what? To talk about Zimbabwe. I said, well, I'm not the guy to talk about Zimbabwe. I haven't been to Zimbabwe. Well, we want you to talk about Zimbabwe. I said, well, I'm not gonna do it. Have one of my African colleagues. No, you, you or no one. So I talked to my African colleagues and they said, okay, one of my colleagues at came on with me and he had been to, to Zimbabwe five times and worked with people who were struggling against the tyranny there. He was fabulous. So I talked about theoretical things about if you print a lot of paper, it will fall in value, paper money, so that's true everywhere. It's true in Zimbabwe, it's true in Hungary, it's true in China, it's true in America. Uh, And he talked about Zimbabwe. And one of the things he said was so powerful, and in some ways only Africans could understand it. He said, if Mugabe had wanted to be a great man and help his country, he could have become a king instead of president. Doesn't that sound strange to the non-Africans here? Because kings we think of as powerful people who crush other people. But at least in West Africa, the role of the king is to be a peacemaker in the community. He's the one you come to when you have disputes over property and land and and family fights and feuds and so on. He brings peace to the community. He helps to settle disputes. And he has the authority that the community grants to him. He's not a president, which is to say a psychotic dictator. (laughs) Right? Which is typically what president means in some of the African states, Zimbabwe being the preeminent example. He could have been a king instead of a president. That was expressing an African understanding of liberty and of the role of institutions to help people to adjudicate disputes and to live together peacefully. Now, each one of us can advance liberty. We can do it in our own countries. There are a number of of, uh, people here from uh, various countries. We can promote peace and free trade among nations. This is a great cause for liberty. And I've been working closely with Chinese and Indian libertarians to promote more free trade between China and India. Two enormous countries that look at each other, their leaders, with a great deal of hostility. It would be good for them and the world if there were more trade between India and China. Everyone would be better off, certainly the Indians and the Chinese. Support those who are suffering from oppression. That's why I love organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and Human Rights Foundation who stand up for people and let them know they are not alone. And support organizations that speak out for us. So, Cato Institute obviously, Atlas Network, Students for Liberty, others, Institute for Justice. There's a whole array of them. I'm not gonna pick any one as the one you have to support but there are so many groups doing important things. But there's one more thing, one more very personal thing, and that is to be willing to stand up and speak for the right thing when the occasion calls for it. So uh, one image that I like very much, uh, I like to take this as how I think we should confront the world, right? I will not comply. Or another way to think of it, with the famous image that's gotten a lot of attention lately. We should all try to be this guy. To be that man, surrounded by people, mindlessly following a horror. And this one man, I don't know who he was, standing there, he's just not going to do it. And I admire someone in that situation. So I hope on my tombstone, They will put that picture and say, he was like that guy. Thank you very much. One more thing. We have some questions that people want to know about the global liberty movement. But I should mention, 9.30, we're going to have a meeting. It'll be downstairs in the lower lobby for all the Bastiav students and anyone else who wishes to come. So we have a microphone someplace. Right back here. Uh, Yeah, so you mentioned that that Karl Popper was a classical liberal, and Mm -hmm. I had absolutely no idea. I knew his work in um, philosophy of science, but I had no idea that he was a liberal, so I was wondering if you could talk to the Uh, whether or not there's been any advance in liberal views within academia. Yes, Uh, I think tremendously, and in a number of disciplines, economics, uh, in uh, political and moral philosophy. Uh, I should mention someone else that you should get to know, and he'll be speaking with the Bastiat students, but anyone else should come and collar him. Uh, Nigel Ashford, Nigel, would you stand up? Uh, Nigel works with the Institute for Humane Studies, a group that I have been affiliated with also for many years. It's a wonderful organization and they work primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the academy. And they have done a great job of helping young people who favor these ideas to advance their careers, not just as mouthing propaganda or repeating what someone else said, but really developing the ideas of liberty. And so. I think there's been tremendous progress and not just in the United States, I should add. Uh, So it's actually much better than when I went to college as an undergraduate. I do recall my first macroeconomics course and it was one of those giant courses with 400 students and the professor had the uh, grease pen thing with the overhead. They didn't have PowerPoint. And he was writing GNP statistics and he just writing G plus I plus S and so on. And the next line, G goes up, government spending goes up, GNP goes up with an upward arrow. I thought, that's interesting. And I asked a question, so I was just a squeaky undergraduate kid. He said, "Ah, yes. And I said, where does G come from? If G goes up, maybe I would go down or C. Could that be? And his answer was not to engage me, he said, what have you been reading? (laughs) And so I answered and he laughed and went on. I don't think that would happen today. So I think we've made a lot of progress in that way. Uh, This was, uh, it's a very different world. And libertarian ideas, I think, are taken much, much more seriously. And I should add, Popper is well worth reading. Uh, as well. And he did write many essays on liberalism. and Let's say classical liberalism. I wouldn't call him a libertarian in in a stronger sense, but definitely a classical liberal. Right here. I feel the need to ask, how and why did you go to North Korea? (laughs) Um... It's a, it's a perfectly reasonable question. If you want to go, it is not difficult to arrange. I do not recommend it now. <laughs> um, because I think the regime is, is a bit more psychotic than it was at the time. But you could arrange it through Koryo tours. And I know the people who run it. And I know many people who have been involved in North Korea. Uh, and I went with a colleague, uh, Dr. El-Harmouzi from um, Morocco. And we wanted to go and look and see what it was like. We just spent a small amount of money uh, doing it. I felt a bit bad about that. This is a psychotic regime. Uh, it was a very small sum of money. And discussing with people who were involved in the scene, they said, it's just unimportant. This is just going into the pockets of some corrupt guys. It doesn't matter. Uh, but it was very useful. I did learn a lot of important things. I'll tell you one thing that was very useful. Uh, first of, everyone is afraid all the time. There are 150 foreigners in the country at any given moment. It's an intensely racist regime. They preach that they are pure Koreans, the purity of the Korean race. Uh, It's really a kind of bizarre totalitarian regime, mixtures of Japanese emperor worship, Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism, and Nazi racial ideology. So kind of the best of all of them uh, put together. It's a scary place. And so here we are non-Koreans in the country and you would think people would be interested in you. So I remember going to China years ago when there were not many foreigners and there were some Europeans that I went with a, a friend who's black and he caused traffic accidents. <laughs> because the China- it's not that the Chinese people were dumb or anything but they'd never seen a black person other than on TV. And so people, bicycles crashed all the time when we walked down the street. Uh, That didn't happen there. No one looked at you. They walked right past you. And the reason is they're terrified. If you talk to them, they will be interrogated by the secret police. What did he say? Did he give you something? And so on. Uh, But I also asked um, one of the uh, minders, Mr. Kim. They're all named Mr. Kim. And I, I asked him a question. I got him way far away from everyone. No one was near us. And I said, Mr. Kim, I have a question for you. I said, yes. I said, what do, will you be doing in 10 years? He said, I'll work in an office, which is a communist answer. Anyone who's known communist society, that's a communist answer. Not I'm going to work in a, in a travel agency, or I'll be a lawyer. I will work in an office. It's a pure communist answer. And I said, no, 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 Mr. Kim, I mean in 10 years, after communism is over. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know what I mean. He said, I don't understand. I said, Mr. Kim, this is the last place. There aren't any others. It's the poorest society in the world, you know that. Uh, there's nothing else. It's over, it's finished, this is going to collapse. And he looked at me and I said, you don't have to say anything because I know that you know that I know that you know that I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and he got quiet and he said, there's the Chinese model. They're thinking. He said, there's the Chinese model. I said, well, it's true. Whatever China is, it isn't communism anymore. China is not a communist state. They don't have a communist economy. He said, the Communist Party is in control of everything. All the rest is just economics. (laughs) And, And he did that. And I thought that was very interesting. It was a very interesting answer. And there was potential for opening to China. And I was very optimistic, and I worked with a number of people on that project. Unfortunately, the current dictator uh, decided to kill all of them in North Korea and so they were all executed because they were connected to his uncle whom he killed who was doing business with China. So that, that, that option uh, didn't come to anything. But, uh, but if you want to go, uh, go to Koryo Tours and you can pay for it and, and they will take you on exactly the same tour I did. Or you can save yourself a lot of money and go online and, and, and watch all the episodes of the Vice Guide uh, trip to North Korea because it's the same trip, the same everything, the same bowling lane, the same, oh, let's stop into this restaurant. It seems nice. It's all, everything is the same. Uh, so you could, you could, It's cheaper. Anything else? Yes, sir. Got a, a mic? Okay, there we go. So thank you, Tom, for um, reminding us Mao is not from Shanghai. Um, so no, no. Oh, no, no. Marx. I mean, Marx is not from Shanghai, but um, there is still a considerable amount of people in China think he's Russian. But my question is related to Karl Marx. So when he just started the communism movement in Europe, um, he doesn't recognize there's borders with the communist movement. So. For the workers, there's no borders, so there's no nationality. Do you think libertarianism is also like that? Or do you think people should recognize their own nationality, their own culture, and to develop uh, the libertarianism in their own countries? That's a deep and interesting question. One of the reasons why communism ran into problems was the nationalities question. Uh, because they thought the proletariat was a universal class. And they were so surprised when the socialists in various European countries supported war with their neighbors. This, this really shocked them. It was not what, what their theory predicted, that nationalism was more powerful than this alleged proletarian ideology. But in their case, they thought ideology or ideas were epiphenomenal. What was real was the material uh, 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 interaction of the material substrate, the means of production, and that that was what drove history and ideas were just the foam on the surface. And if you thought that, then you would assume that there's an automatic identification among this class of the proletariat. But it turns out that's not true, that ideas do matter. They're not just epiphenomenal, they're not just the foam on the surface of the sea. And the ideas of nationalism turned out to be quite powerful and more powerful than a proletarian identity that never existed. It just didn't happen. Now, then the question is, what is it that really makes the nation, though? And there's a very good essay on this I recommend by another classical liberal who's not so well known, named Robert Musil, Robert Musil. He was an Austrian classical liberal. He died in 1944, I think, in exile in Switzerland. And he's one of the greatest writers in the German language ever. He wrote the great book every German aspires to have read called Der Mann ohne Eigenschaften, The Man Without Qualities. It's a a great, great, great book. And he also wrote wonderful essays, a great essay on stupidity, uh, which is well worth reading. Um, But he wrote an essay on nationality and what what is the nation. And he said, well, what is a nation? Some people say it's the great literature and ideas. He says, but if that's the case, there'd be a nation made up of French intellectuals and German intellectuals. They know each other's literature. And the typical peasant in each country has never read Goethe or Voltaire or Racine. They have, so he said, you'd have a peasant nation, speaking French and German, and an intellectual nation. It can't be that it's the great literature and art that makes the nation. And he goes through all these candidates, what is the nation? And then he came up with something that was really remarkable, and I think a kind of libertarian insight. He said, what is finally the nation? He says, the nation is that great myth by which we can commit every conceivable crime and avoid personal responsibility. Because who committed all the crimes in the war? He was speaking of World War I in this context. Did you do it? Did I do it? No. The nation did it. It did it. He said, it's the great fiction by which we avoid our own personal responsibility for our acts," And I think that was a, a deep insight. That said, there's room for a kind of liberal patriotism, if you want to put it that way, to be proud of being identified with a culture that's produced great works of literature, and art, and engineering, and commerce, poems of love, and so on, and to identify with those, um, to think about being a patriotic, uh, uh, Belgium in the context of the great cities of Belgium and what they accomplished, flourishing places of freedom and liberty, not a kind of cheap Belgian nationalism that says we're better than the neighbors. What's that, right? If you want to be an American patriot, be proud of the great moments in American history, of the liberation of the slaves, of the war for independence, of the struggles for freedom of speech, of the great accomplishments of art and science and commerce. Don't be proud of the American government kicking some other little country uh, down. This is nothing to be proud of. But to be proud of the really great accomplishments, that's perfectly fine. And every nation has that opportunity and occasion, not flag waving and war and we're number one and so on. This is a cheap excuse. And real patriotism is to be proud of those things of which one ought to be proud. And those are the accomplishments of voluntary exchange, business, commerce, science, art, and those other achievements. So that's, I think, liberal patriotism, and I embrace it. And that's also one reason why, with the groups that I work with, um, they, I always encourage them. I say, take a name that reflects your own national history. You know, calling it the Milton Friedman Institute in Yemen is not a great idea. Uh, and they might like the ideas of Milton Friedman in Yemen, and we have Yemeni friends who like Milton Friedman. But really, there's going to be some Arabic or some Islamic uh, figure or institution or practice or idea. Francisco Marquín, what a great, inspiring person in Guatemala, this heroic person, man of education, learning, and courage and integrity, who defended the rights of the indigenous people. That's, I think, the way that we should should look at it, and rather than this kind of cheap pseudo-patriotism that uh, 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 wants to glory over other countries. So we'll take one more. Okay, two. There we go. Yes. So while the TPP is marketed as kind of a free trade bill, a lot of people are also concerned that it contains a lot of other stuff. So, what are your thoughts on that, on the TPP? Um, I will quickly say that I have not studied that topic in sufficient depth to have an informed opinion on on that particular question. Uh, There are people at Cato who have. So our colleagues, Dan Eikenson and others, that's what they live and breathe for. And if you really wanna talk trade policy, lock yourself in a room with Dan Eikenson and you will come out knowing everything there is to know about these issues. He's really quite remarkable. Uh, I do not. What I can say in general is that most of the trade deals should not be characterized as free trade. That includes NAFTA, CAFTA, and all the others. But many of them have been freer trade, and we have to make sometimes trade-offs, and I think that most of them have been an an improvement. Uh, But it doesn't follow that we should call those free trade deals. But if they lower the barriers to trade, as has generally been happening around the world, both tariff and non-tariff barriers, this is a good thing. There's one other element that is important and I think liberals, libertarians are uniquely placed to stress this and that is that the formulation of trade policy is fundamentally backwards. The idea that the negotiators say, all right, we'll lower our tariffs if you lower yours is insanity. It's crazy. Our tariffs hurt us. We're the victims of those tariffs. So it's, as Henry George put it years ago, a very memorable image that Milton Friedman quoted, imagine a trade negotiation is like this. Would you come up here for a moment and join me, John? All right, John is gonna be a guinea pig. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna negotiate a trade deal. I'm gonna put my hand around my neck and you put yours around your neck. (laughs) All right, I'll squeeze less hard only if you squeeze less hard. <laughs> okay. Doesn't make any sense. Right? The smartest thing for me to do is remove my hands from my own neck. There, you did a great job. <laughs> so the best position is just free trade. And that means we just eliminate the restrictions and let people buy stuff wherever they want to buy it at whatever price they want to buy it. That's free trade. This other crazy policy of slowly unstrangling myself if the other person does it, if that's all we can get, let's go for it. But I think we should promote unilateral free trade. It's much more rational. It's much better. And it is a better path towards economic prosperity. We had one over here, then. Thank you. Uh, Tom, it's been inspiring to hear you speak tonight as well as earlier in the day about um, the great heroes who advocated liberty. It also seems true that those ideas fell out of favour, particularly in the 20th century. I'd wonder i be grateful for your thoughts on um, why that was the case and what, what lessons that has for the global movement for liberty today. That's a very interesting question. Hayek and others addressed that. What accounted for the decline of liberalism and, and I'll mention one thing in particular. Many artists, painters, composers, musicians, playwrights, and poets were liberals in the 18th and 19th century. Not so much in the 20th and even in the 21st century. And one of the questions is, what happened? Liberalism was at one time a really inspiring idea. And so many of the of the poets Uh, and uh, artists shifted over to one version or another of collectivism, and that's an interesting puzzle. Why did that happen? Why was collectivism so much more inspiring to them? Now, it wasn't universal. There are classical liberal writers. I mentioned Robert Musil as an example. He's well known in German-speaking Europe. Uh, Not so much here, but um, that's a puzzle. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know the commies have all the good songs. And this is something we need to work on. We need better songs in our movement. The other question, one of the things that Hayek suggested was that liberalism seemed like it had won and it was a closed doctrine. You learned it and that was it. Whereas socialism, nationalism, and various other kinds of isms seemed like things you could build. You could advance it. And everyone was given a job. You read these memoirs of young communist intellectuals and young fascist intellectuals, they were building something, they were doing something. And each person was going to advance this intellectual agenda. And liberals didn't offer that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And this is one of the things that Hayek identified as a failure and why he set up the Mont Pelerin Society to make it a living intellectual adventure that would attract lively minds to develop liberal ideas. And that's and one of the things I think Nigel would agree, this is a very important central part of the IHS mission. It's to challenge people, not to bring them in and brainwash them and then at the end give them a questionnaire uh, and give them a little doggy treat if they give the right answer and so on. But challenge people to disagree, to think, to come up with new ideas. It could also be, and it's been suggested by some historians, that changes in technology, the growth of the mass corporation and the, the individual entrepreneur becoming less significant, big companies and amalgamations and so on, might have played uh, some role in changing people's consciousness. If so, that's changed. Individual entrepreneurs are now very well known around the world. And, And entrepreneurship is one of the most positive words in the classical liberal libertarian vocabulary that everyone likes. Not many people say, entrepreneurs, hate them, right? As opposed to capitalists, investors, bankers, and so on. Those generally don't have good uh, uh, PR, but entrepreneur is a very positive term. And that's one that is very close uh, to our tradition. Um, I think the other element also, and this is one we shouldn't... um, underestimate was that crazy people got control of a couple states and turned them into giant factories for the reproduction of insanity. So the first one, of course, was the Soviet Union. They called the Russian Revolution. There, were, there was a Russian Revolution and a coup d'etat, what they called the October Revolution. It was not a revolution. It was a coup organized by the Bolshevik party as a military seizure of power and they began massacring, killing, assassinating their enemies. They took over a huge country and like a virus, they converted it into a factory for reproduction of themselves. And they devoted massive amounts of the GDP of the Soviet Union to the reproduction of Marxism. And we are still dealing with this in the Arab world I have had the impression that although communism is gone, and there are not that many communists or Marxists left, they left a kind of footprint in the mind, in the mentality. The way that people think about economic exchange, about uh, culture, relations among nations, and so on, is deeply influenced by Marxism, and it will take a long time to overcome that. And the fascists also did something similar, and I should mention right now, I'll end on a not very cheery note, but it's a great... A challenge, uh, this has now happened again in Russia. A petrostate is now seized by an ideology of real fascism. Very scary ideology. They have a, a government that is not accountable to anyone. Everything depends on the decision of one man and a small circle of people that he has to keep happy. And he's pouring tons of money into the uh, attack on liberal ideas and I've been tracing this and I've been working on this issue for the last uh, about four years and what have we found? Whole publishing houses conjured up out of the ground publishing an astonishing array of fascist literature. If you want, go to Arktos Media, A-R-K-T-O-S, which is a neo-Nazi fascist publishing house. They popped up a couple of years ago and suddenly dozens and dozens and dozens of books, reproductions and translations of 1930s fascist literature Uh, by German and Italian writers, neo-fascist literature, what they call the Identitarian Movement, which is a white supremacist, racist movement in Europe. Uh, They're popping up all over Europe. The fascist uh, and leftist parties in Europe are Kremlin-financed, Golden Dawn in uh, Greece has received money from the Kremlin, Jobbik party, the neo-Nazi party of Hungary, and the governing party, the Fidesz party, which is closely aligned with Putin and received over 10 billion euros uh, for the Rosatom uh, nuclear power station in a secret treaty that cannot be revealed for 30 years. Front National received tens of millions of euros. Uh, This is the fascist uh, party in France uh, in money, including from Mr. Putin's uh, judo sparring partner uh, who made uh, millions of euros in grants to them. All across Europe, Uh, we're seeing the Kremlin's influence popping up everywhere. And what's remarkable is they support far left, well, that's far right, and far left and far right, both are being supported by the Kremlin. Anyone who's against classical liberal values. And they are rabidly attacking capitalism, freedom of trade, and the concepts of limited government, individual responsibility, personal responsibility, it's all about collective identity. So this is another uh, massively funded source of opposition to our ideas. And I mentioned in Czech and Slovak republics, our friend said all of a sudden, all of these websites popped up very professional, um, pro-Putin, racist, anti-Roma, anti-immigrant, anti-trade websites, uh, and they said it's highly funded, and it seems to be a small group of people just popping these up like mushrooms. So that's an important part of the the struggle that we faced was other groups seizing control of states and using those resources to attack liberal ideas. Unfortunately, it's happening again, but uh, all of our friends in Europe are now alert to this and are very actively Uh, combating it and promoting proper classical liberal values. Well with that, let me conclude with one quick thought. So I ended on a little bit of a downer. Uh, We have uh, enemies who have uh, many many billions of euros and they have us in their target. They see our ideas, not us personally, as the enemy. Uh, But I'm uh, very optimistic about the future. And we're going to hear from some people uh, from Brazil who are gonna tell us uh, what they have been doing. This is an extraordinarily exciting movement and it has really uh, warmed my heart to see this. I am very bullish, I'm very optimistic about the future of freedom. We just have to work harder to make it happen. Thank you very much.